You are listening to the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to start reading in verse 7. We've been in this book for, for, it feels like a long time, for such a short book. We've been in this book for a long time. Um... I want to share a message with you from my heart. I want to minister a message from my heart simply entitled, Jesus will receive the glory. He will receive the glory. Like it's a done deal. It's a sure thing. It's certain. Have, there's no doubts about it. You can take it to the bank. Jesus will receive the glory. That's where this whole thing is headed. This is where your life is headed, whether you're a believer or unbeliever. That's where our, the people in the city, this whole thing is headed. Towards that final end, Jesus will receive the glory. There will be a day. This morning, we saw him rightly for moments, and we, we catch glimpses of his beauty. But there's coming a day where all will see how beautiful Jesus is. For some, it'll be too late. For others, they'll, they'll revel in the reality and the, the, the goodness of the cross the sufficiency of Jesus. But there is coming a day where the beauty of Jesus will be revealed to all humanity, to every soul. Jesus will receive the glory. So wisdom says to consider what's coming next. Is that not oftentimes what what we experience in parenthood? We're trying to teach our kids the, the realities of consequences, the realities of cause and effect. If you do this, this will happen. And that's what wisdom says, to live with this mindset that we understand what's coming, what's coming next. That it's not just about what's right here and now, the things that are fleeting, but there is something coming after. This is headed towards something. There's actually this Hebrew word. The Hebrew word is akarit, and I've shared this before, but this Hebrew word akarit, refers to, in the book of wisdom, it refers to understanding what's coming next. And in Hebrew language, oftentimes Hebrew words refer to certain body, physical body parts. Well, akarit refers to our back. Not our backside, but our back, you know, the the back of, of you. And so wisdom gives you the insight to be able to understand what's coming after, what's on the back of this thing. Just one example, Proverbs chapter five It says, for the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. So in the natural, in the flesh, in the here and now, we're lured towards these sorts of temptations. They're like, wow, it just seems irresistible. It seems logical. It's just we like refer, we almost like um, revert back to our animal instincts. Okay, wow, yeah, her lips are sweeter than, do they drip with honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. Okay, let's, let's go for it. But in the end... That word is akarit, but in the akarit, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. So wisdom gives you the ability, the perspective to realize what comes after, to what's on the back of this whole thing. That is wisdom. And as we've made our way through this letter that Peter wrote nearly 2,000 years ago, he brings us towards that. He brings us towards this life of wisdom, living for this one thing, the glory of God. Knowing that there's coming this day where the beauty of Jesus will be revealed. We have the divine privilege of having a preview into that, of having 
a sneak preview into that. We catch glimpses of his beauty. That's what's won our hearts. That's why we've surrendered our lives to our saviors because we've caught a glimpse of his beauty. We've seen that there's nothing that compares to who he is, that he stands apart. And so we've surrendered ourselves to him as the only sufficient savior for our lives. But there's coming a day when his beauty will be revealed to all souls. Undeniably, without a doubt, And Peter has referenced this already, so this is not, he's not all of a sudden throwing this at us. He's been alluding to this culminating truth in the, throughout this letter. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, he talks of their faith, that their faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That your faith may uh, be consistent with the reality of the revealing of Jesus at the end of the age. That's what he says in chapter 1, verse 7. In verse, chapter 1, verse 13, he says, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So allow your life to live with this sense of hope. And may you be supplied with a grace, with the reality of the revealing of Jesus Christ that is to come. And later, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, I'm just giving you examples. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, he's talking about the practicalities of our, the practical nature of our conduct. Keep your conduct among the, amongst the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evil doers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Like live your life with the end in mind. That there is a day of visitation coming where we will all stand before the judge who all see him as the beautiful one, as the holy one, as the one who is set apart. As Paul says in Philippians chapter two, as we sang earlier, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's where this whole thing is headed. That's the the akarit of this Christian life. The backside of this whole Christian experience is the glory of God, the beauty of the Holy One for all eyes to see that whether it's by their own volition or not, every tongue will confess and every knee will bow saying that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's where this is headed. And so Peter exhorts them with this truth, not so their heads will be in the clouds, not so they'll be detached but actually so they'll live their lives a certain way here and now. That it will actually manifest itself in the the everyday stuff of life. And so that's what we're going to explore this morning. We're going to read straight through, but I just want to start with this first sentence. And then I promise you, I know this is a hard promise for me to keep, but then we'll, we'll read straight through. The first sentence says, the end of all things is at hand. So he's established them in their identity as sojourners, as pilgrims, as priests unto God, as ones who've been born again, all those things of their identity in Christ he's established so far in this book. And then he taught them very practically how to manifest the love of God in the workplace and with governing authorities and, and with, in marriage. And then he says this statement, the end of all things is near. 
which we in the modern church, we, we don't remind ourselves enough of. But in the early church, this was always on their tongue because they had this urgent sense that they were living in the last days. And the cynic in all of us, we say, well, we've been saying it for 2,000 years. How can it still be true? Right? You've probably thought that. How can it be that we're, the end of all things is near and we're living in the last days? There was this sense, genuinely, and this does not detract from the inspiration of Scripture, but there was this reality in the early church that they did think that the, the return of Christ was soon, imminent, like at any moment. And in reality, we don't know when his return will be. But the end of all things in the last days is a descriptor of the, the, the chapter of this story, of the redemptive story. This moment in human history. It can be earmarked as the last days or the end of all things. This closing chapter in this story that God has written, even before time itself, before the foundations of the earth, God had preordained this plan. And this season is marked as the end of all things, as the last days. So do not grow cynical in understanding the urgency of the hour that we live in, the importance of this moment in human history. Some scholars have described it as like this, like you can think of all of human history as this giant tower. And if you place a piece of paper on top of that tower and it says the last days on it, that's the relative nature of the perspective of time. Yes, in our moment, uh, in our little lives, it can seem like it's taking forever for his return. It's taking forever for this story to come to a culmination. But in the grand scheme of things, it's just a moment in time. It's just a sliver in time. And, you know, Peter will get to that in his next letter as some are falling cynical. Some are questioning the reality of the last days, of the end of all things. And in first, or Second Peter chapter 3, I can't remember if this is on the screen or not. But he says, they will say, where's, this, where's the promise of this coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So it's like things are just continuing on. How can we keep saying this is the last days? The end of all things is near. Don't grow cynical. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through the water by the word of God. So all of time is like this giant tower. Time for us is so hard to accurately understand and, and calculate. And that by the means of this world that, that then existed was deluged with water and perished, but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But this is the part I want to get to, verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but in fact, he's patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So the the call upon the church is for us to live with this understanding that the end of all things is near. That the last day, that we are living in the days earmarked as the last days, as Peter said on the day of Pentecost. These are the last days. And I could quote other scriptures as well. 
where Jesus reiterates the same thing. Be watchful, be sober-minded, be alert, be ready. Not paranoid, not putting off our responsibilities and our duties, but rather living a life that's ready with eyes wide open, with our eyes fixed on Jesus. Knowing that his promises are true and sure. Okay, now we're gonna read straight through. So the rest of verse seven, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. And in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Verse 12, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evil doer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed But let him what? Let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin to the household of God. Why? Because we've caught a glimpse of the beauty of the Lord. We actually see him rightly now. Therefore, let judgment start here. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So live with the end in mind. Live to know that we will stand before our creator, before this beautiful one, before the good one, before the holy one. So Jesus will receive the glory. And you may have missed it because we read it, uh, we read it quickly, but I'll go back and review this. The theme that Peter continues to come back to is the fact that we're coming to the glory of Jesus being revealed to all people. And I, and I want to call us this morning to live with this as a reality. And I'm, I've been preaching to myself. I try to do that anytime I minister the word to us as a church family, make sure I've first ministered it to my own heart. But I believe the Lord is calling us to live with a sense of the reality of, of the fact that this is headed towards his glory, towards his beauty being revealed to all people. Not just as mere doctrine, but as truth, as a living truth. Is this not the example that Jesus gave for us when he revealed his kingdom? He said, the kingdom of God is near. And he commissioned his disciples to go and speak the same thing. The the message of the church is that, is a revealing of the kingdom of God, a revealing of the sons of God, for the world to have a testimony of what God is like, for them to come to repentance, knowing that this is where this whole thing is headed. God receiving glory, people seeing him rightly. And so how does, how does Peter call them to that? Or what are the demonstrations of this uh, that Peter calls out here in this passage? First is praying, is, is, is in our prayer lives, praying like it's true. We pray with this sense that the glory of God will be revealed to all people. We pray with that sort of faith 
with our eyes on the target like that. You know, not all prayer is the same. Not all prayer is, is equal. Some prayer is just venting. Some prayer is some things we categorize as prayer is it's not even prayer. Sometimes prayer, we can just be grumbling to the Lord. What he refers to here in verse 7 with this understanding that the end of all things is near, be sober-minded, be alert for the sake of your prayers, that type of prayer is bursting with faith because we understand that the culmination of this whole story is set in stone because of the revealing of Jesus the first time. It was like stake in the coffin through the resurrection of the enemy. That's where this is headed. The glory of God. So we pray like it's true. We pray like this is a reality. We pray the way that Jesus taught us to pray. That his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, you've given us a glimpse of your heavenly realities. We pray that that would be manifest in our city. We owe the world that sort of encounter with Jesus. Most people have no idea about true Christianity. Although many people would espouse some sort of faint attachment to Christianity, some sort of nominal Christianity inherited through, through family or through tradition. The sort of true Christianity that sees God rightly because of the testimony of Jesus is foreign to most people in the West, to most people in the world. And so we pray with this burning passion that, the, that specifically our neighborhoods, our city, would receive an encounter with Jesus just a couple of weeks ago, me and my son we were running an errand and we, we picked up a man who was, who was asking for a ride and we got talking with him and he had had a walker and so we asked him about his hip, what was, what was wrong and he told us the story of what had happened. He got shot in the leg and we ended up praying for him in the car and got him to where he was going. We dropped him off and it was, a, it was a cordial, you know, cordial exchange. But as we were driving away, my son, asked, my, my son asked me, as kids do, Dad, did we do that? Did we pick up, did we pick up people and, and pray for people like that? Did we do that because you're a pastor? And I said, no, son. We don't do that because I'm a pastor. We do that because we're Christians. That's, that, that is the call upon every Christian, is that our eyes live with this sort of urgency, that our life is not our own, and this story is headed towards something. It's headed towards Jesus being revealed in beauty, and there will be others gathered that day that they'll see him, and maybe they knew us, and I don't know if they'll be able to turn to us and say, hey, why didn't you give me a testimony of what this beautiful guy is like, this beautiful God is like? But we pray with that sort of faith that's bursting from our soul. That's the life of a Christian. That's what marks you know, our corporate times together as a church family. It's bold times of prayer. It's not religious posturing. It's prayers of faith because of the revelation that we've been given, because of the understanding or the, the clarity that we've seen Jesus with. We pray with that sort of faith, knowing that the world around us deserves an encounter with the same God in that same way. And that's oftentimes why we tie so intimately prayer and worship for us as a church family. Prayer and worship are tied together for us because out of a heart that's worshiping, we can pray more rightly. 
It's been said that only when we see the affairs of earth in the light of eternity will we see them in their proper proportion. So we're gonna pray like it's true. That's what Peter says. And in verse eight, he says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So we love like it's true. We're gonna pray like it's true. We're gonna love like it's true. We're gonna love like this story is headed towards the beauty of God being revealed to all people. And we're gonna love like it's true. He says love covers a multitude of sins. Now, Peter is not talking about some sort of works-based righteousness where if we love enough, we can cover up our past sins. You know, the prior chapter, chapter two, he had just said that Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. So that's settled. Our salvation, the forgiveness of our sins is only paid for by the work of Jesus Christ, not by us loving better and trying to do these good works. But I believe there is this sense that we cannot be duplicitous in action in a, in a moment in time. We cannot love a person and be sinful towards them at the same time. As we love them well, it covers up and it overcomes that sinful part of our hearts, the sinful part of our flesh. Love overcomes sin every single time. And so we, we love like it's true, like it's a burning reality. That, that Jesus will be revealed as beautiful, that people will see him rightly. And Jesus is our example in that. You know, Philippians chapter two, I'll just quickly read that example. Philippians chapter two, Jesus is our example. Let each one of you not, or look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So this is our mind in Christ. This is our inheritance. This is what we're called to. None of us are given a free pass. If you're a Christ follower, this is yours in Christ. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not, not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in the human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And I quoted the rest earlier. That is the example we're given. Jesus lived, obviously, for the glory of the Father. He said that. He said, that glory the Father has given me, I'm giving to you. We've caught this glimpse of how beautiful God is. Now we are called to live and love accordingly. Third, let's keep going in verse 10. Then it says, as each have rec has received a gift, use it to serve one another. So we pray like it's true, we love like it's true, and we serve like it's true. Serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. So the end of all things is a reality, and it's near, it's at hand. We are living in the last days. But that doesn't mean that we are called to live as hermits, detached from the world, you know, abdicating our responsibility. We already covered that in the prior chapters. We have a real mandate upon our lives to demonstrate the gospel through our marriages, through our families, in the workplace, even our interactions with worldly systems. And so we are called to serve like it's true. Serve as though this whole thing is headed towards the beauty of God being revealed to all people. There is a 
revealing of Jesus that is, or is that, evident, that is evident through our serving. I remember hearing from a missionary recently a story when she held a child in the slums of the, of the region that she served in Africa, holding a child who was ridden with scabies and lice. And it was in that moment as she held that child where most of us would cringe, most of us would avoid at all costs, she saw Jesus. She held this child in the midst of suffering, but what she saw was Jesus. Because Jesus says, as you serve the least of these, you serve him. There is a revealing of Jesus that happens. There's a beauty of Jesus that's revealed to our hearts through serving. And that is then evident to the world around us. So we serve like it's true. If we serve the least of these, we serve Jesus. So the question is, will we serve as though the beauty of Jesus is being revealed through our serving? Will we? Will we count the cost? Will we do that? Will we live as though the the words on this page are actually true? I'm going to invite Scott forward to just come to the keys. In the last portion of this passage that we read is in a similar vein as to what Peter has addressed in prior chapters. Because the context, the audience that he's speaking to is persecuted Christians. So lastly, he he addresses endurance, enduring like it's true. We can endure, this is what my father-in-law would always say, you can endure anything for a short period of time. And that is truth. It's actually courage for your soul, courage for your bones, to, to, to ground yourself in the truth that what's before us is temporary and there's something coming that is final. It's the glory of God. And so he infused them with that message. This is headed towards something. He says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, which we often do when difficulties come our way. We're like, come on, God, what's going on? Have you abandoned me? Where are you, Lord? What's wrong with me? Or what's wrong with you, God? We say, woe is me, right? We, we all do that, or maybe it's just me. He says, but rejoice as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad. What? When his glory is revealed. So we endure suffering. We endure difficulties, fiery trials, with this understanding that the glory of God is going to be revealed in these coming days, that this is temporary. And I believe there's an intimacy, there's a presence of God that's felt even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of difficulties, in the midst of fiery trials. He says, let, oh yeah, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But what? Let him glorify God in that name. So give glory to God. He's worthy despite your circumstances. He's beautiful despite your circumstances. Nothing detracts from his beauty. Even if life isn't all sunny skies and and roses. He's still beautiful. He's still worthy. He's still just, just as full of glory. So we glorify God in that name. And then as he ends, let those who suffer according to God's will 
and trust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So we endure like it's true. That's a difficult exhortation for me to to give to people who carry a whole variety of difficult circumstances. So please understand my heart. We look upon the beauty of Jesus, becomes fuel for our heart, courage to overcome any fiery trial. As the trial takes a toll on our heart, on our soul, what do we do? We get back on our knees and we look upon him again. We say, let me see you rightly. I'm being distracted by the fiery trials. I'm being distracted from, or by the sufferings. But I want to look at you, Jesus. Even that's what we did earlier in worship. I believe the, the three Hebrew boys in Daniel, tree, in Daniel 3 capture it beautifully as they were going to be thrown into the fiery furnace. He said, the God whom we serve, he's able to deliver us. But even if not, we will not bow down. They were grounded in where this whole thing was headed. They knew he was worthy, that he was beautiful, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of how this whole trial was overcome. Either they'll overcome it on the other side or in the here and now. But they're not going to bow their knee to their circumstance. And Paul equips us in that in in Ephesians 5 with the armor of God. Clothing ourselves with the beauty of Jesus. That's really what the the essence of the armor of God is. Clothing yourself with the very person and presence of Jesus. And you can overcome anything that comes your way. Any fiery dart the enemy throws your way. This has been the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc.